We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cass. Good morning. 63 billion with a B. Governor Westmore unveiled his preliminary fiscal year 2024 budget plan last week, a $63 billion blueprint for goals that include raising the minimum wage and improving the quality of public education. This budget that you will see is, uh, is not only a summation of our values, it's strategic. It prepares us to weather the downside risk in the larger economy, but it also makes long-needed investments to position us for long-term growth. Joining us to discuss Governor Moore's plan is Danielle Gaines, editor-in-chief of the news site Maryland Matters. Welcome back to the show, Danielle. Hello, thanks for having me. How does Moore's budget reflect his administration's priorities? You know, the budget presentation this week was really interesting and definitely reflected um, the administration's priorities and also just kind of the personalities that are there. So it was a, it was a very long slideshow was a very long presentation and included a lot of detail. But one of the things that they really underscored throughout the presentation is that they wanted to um, set policies and set a budget that would um, help Maryland build a, quote, competitive and equitable economy. And so they were focusing on things um, like investment in education, investment in transportation. Um, you know, there are some tax cuts and tax credits that are extended in that plan. There's also a plan to accelerate the state's build up to a $15 minimum wage and uh, to invest in some certain targeted sectors of the economy. Any specifics on transportation spending? Well, what what they sought to highlight with transportation spending is that they're giving a half a billion dollars to transportation in addition to the regular transportation budget. The governor, when pressed, wouldn't say exactly what he hopes that money is spent on. Um, He said he wants to leave that decision to a transportation secretary that's supposed to be named very soon. Um, But he did say, you know, that the Purple Line would be finished, that the east-west transit in Baltimore is going to be a priority, and that those two ideas don't have to compete with one another, that they both can come to fruition. So we talked about east-west transportation in Baltimore, does he specifically have any money to revive the red line that Governor Hogan canceled? I think they're trying to find a balance on the red line, and I think they're trying to avoid um, being clocked into too specific a plan before they have a transportation secretary that would lead that plan. But they have a couple of competing priorities to balance there starting from absolute scratch, uh, which they don't really want to do. And also, you know, the red line plan that does exist is now uh, you know, 10 years old. So it's not exactly um, an up-to-date document. So I think there are a few different options on the table. Are there tax increases in this budget? There aren't any tax increases. Um, there may be some increased tax revenue because certain parts of the economy are still, and certain individuals are still earning more than others. There are some tax credits that they plan to include in here. The governor plans to introduce something called the Family Prosperity Act, which would make permanent an expansion of the earned income tax credit, which lawmakers passed in 2021. Um, He also talked about um, making the child's tax credit in Maryland more available to more families. Um, And then there was also some discussion of a bill called uh, the Keep Our Heroes at Home Act, which would exempt a portion of military retirement income from taxation. 
Going into the new fiscal year that starts July 1st, the state projects having a $2.3 billion surplus and $2.9 billion in its rainy day account where surplus funds are held in case of unexpected expenses. What effects would this proposed budget have on the surplus? If everything holds true to what they're planning, as you said, at the end of this current fiscal year, there would be about $5.2 billion in reserves through the rainy day and through the budget surplus. Um, They are looking to spend those two accounts down, and they say they're looking to spend them down strategically and to, you know, meet the moment of an uncertain economy and the need to invest. Um, So they would spend those down from about $5.2 billion to about $3.3 billion. Um, That is within kind of um, a legislatively set uh, mandated minimum that's set by something called the Spending Affordability Committee. Moore pointed to the number of vacant positions in state government as one reason there is a surplus. He called the number of vacancies, quote, unsustainably high, close quote. Do you expect we'll soon see a surge in hiring? I think so. When you're when you're reading through the budget document, one of the things that you can see is that um, within the executive branch, which is where the governor would have the most you know, authority to fill vacancies, there are about 6,500 vacancies. And the governor intends in, in this budget plan, it assumes that half of those vacancies would be filled by the end of this fiscal year. There are also vacancies within higher education and other parts of state government, which he um, is encouraging those parts of government to fill as well. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with Marilyn Matters, Editor-in-Chief Danielle Gaines, about Governor Moore's $63 billion preliminary budget plan. On his first day in office, Governor Moore released $69 million in funds that had been withheld by his predecessor, Governor Hogan. Where will this money go? So this was all money related to essentially four bills that Governor Hogan chose to either not sign um, or that were vetoed or that he vetoed and were overridden by the legislature. So about 9.1 million that he released is related to the Climate Solutions Now Act. And that money would go to establishing a green bank in the state of Maryland and um, uh, putting money towards grants for uh, renewable energy at like multifamily homes, apartment homes. There was also 46.5 million related to the Cannabis Reform Act. Um, Some of that would go towards a business assistance fund ahead of that industry coming online. And there also is money to help kind of implement an an expungement program, an expungement process, uh, which is part of that legalization bill. $3.5 million, which is some of what you've heard talked about the most probably, is related to the Abortion Care Access Act of 2022. And that money will go to the Department of Health, which is going to set up a training program that would help practitioners other than physicians. So people like nurse practitioners, midwives, or physician assistants um, be trained in providing abortion care in Maryland. And that's an expansion of of Maryland um, abortion care laws in light of um, the restrictions that have been passed in other states. Governor Moore is also establishing a new cabinet agency, the Department of Service and Civic Innovation. What, What is this department's assignment? Yeah, Governor Moore, um, you know, service is something that's very important to him. And it's something that he thinks, um, you know, has turned him into the person that he is. 
And so he keeps saying that he wants Maryland to be a quote, state of service. Um, and so he is establishing this department. It's a cabinet level position. It would have a secretary who would be part of the governor's cabinet. And that person would help coordinate um, service opportunities and um, and the like across state government. One of the things that that department would also do is create um, something that Governor Moore has promised, which is a universal service year option for high school graduates in the state of Maryland. State legislators have more power over the budget starting this session. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is, I've covered the state budget for several years now, and this is a debate I really just loved (laughs) listening to for a long time. Um, But in 2020, the General Assembly passed a bill that then went to voter referendum and was approved by voters that will allow the General Assembly to have more say in how the state budget is crafted. So previously, the General Assembly was really able to just you know, keep the governor's budget as it was or subtract money or in some cases fence off money, which is what happened with that 69 million that we talked about a few minutes ago. And, you know, if they fence it off and the executive doesn't agree with them, he can just spend it or not spend it. And the Hogan administration, many times he chose just not to spend it, not to spend money on these democratic priorities. This year, they have the power to kind of move money around between different funds um, as long as they find a way to pay for everything. What's really interesting about it is that now that this is in place, both uh, some of the budget leaders in the General Assembly and uh, Governor Moore have indicated that it's really not a power that they think they'll use, that they'd rather just negotiate a budget that everyone can be happy with. Before he left office, Republican Governor Larry Hogan urged caution, saying, quote, it would be a mistake for the legislature to use its newly expanded budgetary power to return to its old habits of raiding the rainy day fund or recklessly spending down the surplus, close quote. Do Democratic leaders agree with his assessment? I think this is, you know, typical of what we heard from the governor throughout his time in in office. I think Democratic leaders want to spend down some of the surplus that the state has, but they want to make sure that they're not doing, they would say they want to make sure they're not doing it recklessly, that they're investing in things that might, um, you know, have a return on investment to the state's coffers, or that the money that they're spending now in spending down the surplus is is one-time funding. So they're using the money to build a building um, instead of using that money to like hire an employee who they may not be able to, you know, pay for for years and years and years down the line. So they would say that they're doing it um, in a prudent way. And, you know, people that I talked to also underscored that there will be one more set of revenue estimates that the legislature gets in March, right before they finish their budget work. And that's really the set of revenue estimates that's going to guide, you know, where this budget ultimately ends up. And if it stays, you know, rosy as it has been, um, you know, this budget or something like it is very likely to get passed. If uh, the state revenue picture turns a little more dark, you know, you could see them kind of curtail things um, later in the legislative session in order to pass a budget that's more sustainable. How are Republican legislators reacting to Governor Moore's budget proposal? I spoke to a couple of Republicans um, on Friday who attended the um, budget breakfast that Governor Moore had. And, you know, to some degree, they're reserving judgment, but they also voiced concern about a few things. You know, they did voice concern about spending down the surplus. Um, You know, that's something that Republican Governor Larry Hogan was very happy and proud to leave the state with. 
Um, they also expressed some concern about this idea of a fair wage act that would speed the state's process to getting to a $15 minimum wage while also um, indexing that wage to inflation for the future. Um, they expressed some concerns about small business being able to keep up with that kind of a policy. Danielle, thanks for explaining this to us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Danielle Gaines is editor-in-chief of Maryland Matters. At the On the Record page at WIPR.org, we have links to more coverage of Governor Moore's budget plan. Short break now on the record. When we're back, a health care advocate's priorities for expanding insurance coverage in Maryland. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. As lawmakers dig into bills and hearings this session, advocates have been preparing for months to make the case for their priorities. Joining me now is a longtime lobbyist for public health causes, Vincent DeMarco. DeMarco is president of the Health Care for All Coalition, which has been working since 1999 to increase access to affordable health care coverage. Welcome back to the show, Vinny. Thank you so much. I'd love to be here with you. Let's talk about healthcare for all's priorities this legislative session. One is to pass a bill to automatically enroll some Marylanders into low cost or free health insurance plans. Who? First of all, let me just say we are thrilled that in his inaugural address, Governor Westmore specifically said we got to deal with the 250,000 uninsured Marylanders. And we're thrilled he said that one great way of leaving no one behind. And we think an important way to do that is to find and enroll the tens of thousands of Marylanders who are now eligible for free or low-cost health care and not enrolled. Many of them are on the SNAP, what used to be food stamps uh, program. So a great bill by Delegate Lorig Sharkudian, Senator um, Malcolm Augustine, would pretty much automatically enroll people if they're on the SNAP program, eligible for Medicaid, but not enrolled. We think that's a really important step forward. And there's a hearing on that uh, Senate Bill 26 on February 2nd before the Finance Committee. That's a big step forward for us. When you call these low-cost insurance plans, how much of a premium do you consider low-cost? Well, uh, we're thinking zero. We're talking about Medicaid, uh, which is free. We This bill would only address people who are eligible for Medicaid, which is no premiums and full health care coverage. The fact is that when people who are uninsured go to the hospital, ring up huge costs, we all pay for that. So it's better to get people enrolled for all of us. And that's why we want to make sure that the tens of thousands of people out there who are eligible for Medicaid and not enrolled get enrolled. And this SNAP bill is a great way to do that. There was additional outreach during the pandemic to uninsured individuals. More than 180,000 residents, a record, enrolled for health coverage for 2022 through the state's insurance marketplace. How many Marylanders are still without coverage? Well, it's a great question. We don't know for sure, but we do know we have made progress. We've gone from 13% uninsured before the Affordable Care Act to about 6%. Our exchange, health care benefit exchange, is doing a great job. But there are maybe 250,000 to 300,000. We don't know the exact number of folks still enrolled. And 
we really want to make a priority to find and enroll those people who are eligible for e-healthcare but don't know about it, have trouble going through the process. Our easy enrollment bill to get people enrolled at tax time is a good step in that direction. This SNAP bill will really help move that forward. You plan to work to chip away at barriers keeping young people from getting insurance coverage. The Affordable Care Act allows young adults to stay on their parents' health care plans until age 26. So which young people are falling through the cracks? Some uh, young people don't have parents who are enrolled in health care, which is a problem for them. But this bill that Senator Brian Feldman and Delegate Ken Curry got passed a couple of years ago gave additional grants to young people between 18 and 34 who, even with the Affordable Care Act subsidies, couldn't afford health care. And thanks to this bill, which was about $20 million a year for two years, about 29,000 additional young people got enrolled. And these are healthy people, help bring our all the rest of our premiums down. And that is going to expire this year in 2023. We want to make that permanent. We want to expand that. So legislation will be put in by those two legislators to extend that program, which has been uh, very, very successful. Another group you're advocating for are people who immigrated to the U.S. and made Maryland their home. What's what's the plan? Well, uh, Delegate uh, Bonnie Coulson and um, Senator Clarence Lamb are putting in legislation to open up our health benefit exchange, the Affordable Care Act coverage to undocumented people and people, other people with immigration barriers. It's unconscionable that many thousands of Marylanders who pay taxes and otherwise are part of the system can't get health care coverage. And that's uh, unfortunately in the federal law. But we want to, at the state level, make some progress. We made progress last year. A law was passed that... Um, uh, allowed uh, Im- immigrant babies and their mothers to get health care, the Healthy Babies Act. That's great. But other states have gone beyond that, and we want to do the same. So a major way to achieve our ultimate goal of 0% uninsured in Maryland is to remove immigration barriers. And we also have legislation to help small businesses. Delegate Robin Lewis and Senator Katie Fry Hester putting in a bill, and that's being heard in the Senate on February one to provide grants to small businesses to le- allow them to help help them get their employees into the Affordable Care Act. President Biden and um, Vice President Harris did a great job at passing the Inflation Reduction Act, which increased the federal subsidies. So a lot of these folks who work for small businesses or uninsured are eligible for free or very low cost health care. We want to get them enrolled and this program would do that. And that's the fifth of our five-part agenda, which we are very hopeful about uh, getting enacted many, many of these programs this year. On the small business subsidy, I want to make sure I'm clear, you're, that would subsidize premiums for those workers or subsidize whatever costs the small businesses incur in lining up the coverage? No, no, it, it would be a program to allow the exchange to reach out to small businesses and help them get their employees enrolled in the uh, Affordable Care Act plans with a lot of subsidies. It's not additional subsidies. It's a, it's another way of reaching those folks who are eligible for sometimes very low cost health care, $10, $15 a month, something like that, but don't know about it and get them, get them enrolled. So a lot of people work for small businesses now who are eligible for very, uh, very inexpensive plans and don't know about it. And this is a program to get them enrolled. At what size is an employer required to offer health plans to employees? That's over 50. That's under the Affordable Care Act. So we're talking about much smaller businesses. It's Vinny DeMarco, president of the Healthcare for All Coalition. Here on The Record on WIPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about the coalition's goals this legislative session. 
expanding care to cover all these people through the state health care exchange, young people, small business employees, immigrants, costs money. Why, why are you so sure it's worth it? Well, it's worth it because we now all pay a hidden health care tax whenever someone goes to the emergency room in a hospital and is uninsured. Our premiums cover them. Let's do this in a smart way by covering them up front with these programs. But we also want to make sure that we make healthcare more affordable. And one of the biggest drivers of unaffordable healthcare for people is high cost prescription drugs. That's why we've got this wonderful prescription drug affordability board, which is doing a great job. And one of our agenda items this year is to make sure they have the budget necessary to do their job well. They have an assessment they put on drug manufacturers, insurers and others do their job, but they need additional money to make up for uh, Governor Hogan vetoing that assessment a few years ago. We are hoping to work with the Moore administration and the General Assembly to give them the money they need to do their job right to make health care more affordable for all of us. Back up for us, because as you alluded to, the Prescription Drug Affordability Board got a slow start, and many of us don't know exactly what it's supposed to do and what it has been doing. Catch us up on that. Well, the board was given the authority to make high-cost drugs more affordable for state and local governments, and it's, it's, it's on track to do that, but it's a little behind its original schedule because Governor Hogan vetoed their ass- assessment bill to allow them to put a, an assessment or a fee on drug manufacturers and others to pay for their work so that they've been a little slower, but they're on track, I think, to do the job for state and local governments Uh, this year, but they need some additional money because they had to borrow money to do the work they're doing now. But once that's done, we hope to come back next year uh, to support legislation that would give them the authority to make high-cost drugs more affordable for everyone. But this start with state and local governments is going to be very exciting, and we hope that that happens in the next few months. The board released its first report last month, and it noted that from July 2021 to July 2022, More than 1,200 prescription drug products experienced a price increase that exceeded the inflation rate. So what power do you think a fully funded board will have to address the increasing cost of prescriptions? Well, well, first of all, uh, I want to say that the Inflation Reduction Act also made high-cost drugs more affordable for people on Medicare. The federal law. The Federal Inflation Reduction Act. So that's great. For people not on Medicare, our board can continue that work. And by using its authority to make high-cost drugs more affordable for state and local governments, it will make sure that state and local governments can afford the drugs they need for their employees without breaking the bank and and, and not enabling them to do the other necessary work they have to do. But we're going to have to come back and get additional legislation to allow them to make high-cost drugs more affordable for all of us uh, who are not helped by the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's 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 a major step in the right direction. And I'm proud to say that several other states have enacted prescription drug affordability boards based on our model, Colorado and Oregon in particular, and, and are moving forward. So we're, we're making sure that high cost drugs are ultimately affordable for all Marylanders. Vinny DeMarco, some listeners may hear this and think this is a really liberal agenda. And yeah, we have a Democratic legislature and a Democratic governor, but what kind of opposition do you expect? It's a good question. We, we don't know on the specific uh, proposals. We have to do a good job of laying out why this is good for everybody. And, and I think we will do that, that kind of a job. But you can all find out more about this at healthcareforall.com 
and you could look at the specifics of each proposal. And, um, you know, there are always people who say, you know, we, we can't afford to do anything. But the fact is, if we don't get health care coverage for people, they suffer and all of us suffer because of the hidden health care tax to cover hospitalization of the uninsured. So this is a very smart way to make our state better for everyone. And again, we thank Governor Moore for making covering the uninsured one of his priorities in his inaugural address. And we look forward to working with him, Lieutenant Governor Miller, to get this done. Vinny, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Vinny DeMarco is president of the Healthcare for All Coalition. At the On the Record page at WYPR.org, we have links to more information about the coalition's platform. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow.